Okay, let's get into the Word then. This is the sermon you've all been waiting for and dreading, probably. This is the sermon on money. We're, we've been doing a series on the church, and we come to our last one today. <laughs> Your favorite, huh? <laughs> actually, it should be, because actually there's nothing more exciting than giving, as you're going to see. There's nothing that's more exciting than giving, because God has made promises to people who do. But, let's pray. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would come and open up the Word of God to us and give us a passion for the church, Lord, which will include a passion to be generous givers to see your kingdom expand throughout the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. So, Lord, would you anoint this message and bless your people here today in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to our last message in the series of Passion for the Church. And let me just quickly review where we've come from over the last eight weeks. We talked about Jesus' passion for the church. That's how we started this whole series. And then we took a look at why we should be a committed member of a local church. So if some of you didn't get in on some of these messages, just go to the website and you can listen to them or download them to your iPod. It's great. But yeah, why we should actually be a committed member of a local church. Thirdly, we talked about loving one another in the church and how crucial and central love is to the Christian life. We talked about the church in the home. Kind of a strange subject to address on a Sunday morning in a pulpit, but we did that because we were casting vision for leaving the public setting of Rancho Cordova City Hall and coming into the home setting and using the home setting as a reproducible, simple format of reproducing disciples in churches. Then we talked about what the church should be devoted to. And we looked at Acts 2, 42 to 47, especially verse 42. And what we should not be devoted to and what we ought to be devoted to. And then we looked at every member ministry. Every person is a believing priest of God. We all have a ministry to the body to build up the body. And then last week we looked at the mission of the church which is to preach the gospel, make disciples, and plant churches. Now today we come to our final one, and it's I'm going to simply call it storing up treasure in heaven, because that's really the emphasis I want to get across today. As you faithfully give, you are storing up for yourself treasure in heaven. And a passion for Jesus' church includes a passion to be a generous giver. Matthew 6, let's read verses 19 to 21. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that last line. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your giving is a really good indicator of where your heart is. If you were to come and look at my checkbook, register and read through the last year of where I spent my money, or look through my credit card statement and just find out what Brian is spending his money on, that would be a really good indicator to you of where my heart is right now. Is my heart on God or is my heart on the world? And you'd be able to find out very quickly. 
Our giving is a barometer. It's an indicator of our spiritual commitment and affection to God. You see, your heart can't focus on two things at the same time. Jesus says in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. You can't serve God and wealth at the same time. So if my heart is fixed upon Christ, I can't have it also fixed upon money at the same time. Money can be used as a vehicle to worship and love and serve God, but I can't have money as my end and have God as my end all at the same time. My heart just can't do it. My heart is only able to fix itself on one thing at one particular time. Notice in this passage that Jesus gives two commands. First one's in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He gives a command what not to do. Then verse 20, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He gives a command what we are to do. Now did you notice that Jesus is not against you storing up for yourself treasure in heaven? In fact, he commands you to do it. He commands you to do it in verse 20. Here's the imperative. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He wants you to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Here's a negative command. Don't store up treasures on earth. The positive command, store up treasures in heaven. Now why is he so insistent that we store up treasures in heaven? Do you see it? Do you see the reason from the text? So thieves won't break or Absolutely. Because your treasures on earth will never last. Only your treasure that's stored up in heaven will last. If you amass all this wealth in this world, in this lifetime, uh, you may have it for a limited period of time, but it's subject for thieves taking it, or moths, or rust destroying it, or if Jesus was talking to us in the 21st century, he would say, recessions and the breaking down of the stock market will be those that take away your wealth. But you can't count on it. It doesn't last. And when you die, it's all gone. You can't take it with you. So, what he's saying to us is it's really the smart thing to do to store up treasure in heaven. What would you say of a guy who spent his whole life trying to become rich in this world, but the whole time he knows he can only be rich for a few years, and then he's going to lose out on eternal riches forever? What would you say about a guy like that? He's a fool. He's a fool to do that. What if I said to you, I'm going to give you a thousand bucks and you can use that thousand dollars to spend on whatever you want. It's yours. But if you'll wait one year, I'm going to give you a million dollars. And every year after that, you'll have a million dollars. Okay, so you've got a choice. A thousand dollars now, a million dollars in a year, and every year after you get another million dollars. What would you say of the guy who just eagerly latched onto the thousand dollars and he says, oh great, I'm gonna go get me some pizza and some hot dogs and I'm gonna get some new clothes and this will be great. You say, that guy's a fool. If he could just wait a year, he's gonna be a millionaire. You see, we call that delayed gratification. God causes us to not try to sink our roots into this world system and get everything we can out of it. He wants us to be storing up treasure for the future, for the eternal ages to come. If we will take our money now and invest it in eternity, we'll never 
be disappointed because throughout all eternity those riches will have been laid up for us to enjoy now I don't know what form those riches are in heaven I have no idea but I, I take Jesus at his word he says that by giving we are actually storing up treasure for ourselves in heaven now I'm gonna ask three questions this morning why should we give I'm sorry two questions why should we give and how should we give those are the two questions we need to answer from Scripture today. Why should we give, and then how should we give? First of all, why? Why does Jesus want us to give? Number one, because our giving is an act of worship. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. Have you ever considered your giving, your financial giving, as an act of worship? Let me show you some texts. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4. Here Paul is talking about a gift that the Philippians had sent him. And in Philippians 4.18 he says, But I have received everything in full, and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus, which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now notice how he describes their gift to him. It's a fragrant aroma... What else in the Old Testament was described as a fragrant aroma? Yeah, the animal sacrifices. You can read the book of Leviticus, and over and over, these animal sacrifices, God describes as a fragrant aroma to him. Beautiful smell, <laughs> as he smells these sacrifices. Notice the second one. An acceptable sacrifice. You see, Paul is using Old Testament sacrificial imagery. He's using that imagery to describe their financial gift and he's saying that it's worship just like those Old Testament animal sacrifices were worship for Old Covenant believers so too giving is one aspect of our worship under the New Covenant and then he says here it's well pleasing to God you're giving how does God feel about that it's well pleasing do you remember what he said of Jesus this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased well, we can be well-pleasing to the Lord if we regard our giving as an act of worship. The Lord receives that, and He's pleased with it. So, giving is an act of worship. Let me show you another text. Proverbs 3, verse 9. Proverbs 3, 9. It says, Honor the Lord from your wealth, and from the first of all your produce honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce what happens when we actually give our wealth to the Lord what happens here it says he's honored he's glorified he receives worship honor glory and worship from his people when we give or there's another text I'd like you to see from the book of Deuteronomy it's Deuteronomy 16, and this has to do with the religious feasts and festivals of Israel. Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 and 17. Three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the feast of unleavened bread, and at the feast of weeks, and at the feast of booths. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. 
Well, what do you mean he, they're not supposed to appear before the Lord empty-handed? Well, verse 17 tells us, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. So, as God has given you and blessed you, you are to give back to the Lord. So, every male was to come up to these three religious festivals. You had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, and then Unleavened Bread stuck together. It's like an eight-day festival. Two months later, you have the second one, which is uh, the Feast of Weeks. And then about three or four months after that, you have the next one, which is the Feast of Booths. And every man was commanded by God, wherever he happened to live, to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to participate in these religious Jewish festivals. But he could not come empty-handed. He couldn't come without something. He had to bring as God had blessed him to give. Notice they were participating in worship when they came to these religious festivals. But God says, I want you to come, but I don't want you to come empty-handed. Now we can translate that principle into New Covenant principles today by when we come to worship God, we need to come with something. We give not with empty hands, but with something in our hands to give to the Lord. And so, when you place your gift in the offering box over here, I would encourage you just to whisper a silent prayer. Lord, this is how much I love you. Lord, I'm worshiping you with this gift. Make it worship. Don't just absentmindedly just drop a check or some cash into that box. Think about this is worship that you're performing to God. Think about the word offering. Offering box. You are offering this to God as worship. Okay, principle number one. We should give to God because it's an act of worship. Number two, because it yields heavenly treasure. Because giving yields heavenly treasure. We already read Matthew chapter 6 where he says, Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Go over to Matthew 19. And there you have the story of the rich young ruler. And Jesus gives this rich young ruler a very difficult command. He says, There's one thing you lack. I want you to sell everything that you possess. And I want you to take that money and give it to the poor. And notice verse 21. I wish you to be, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And what's going to be the result? You're going to have treasure in heaven. Now we tend to just kind of gloss right over that and not really take that seriously. Jesus is promising him, you have earthly treasure that's going to last a few years. Do you want heavenly treasure that will never go away? It's going to last for eternity? Then just take some of this earthly treasure. Take it, sell it all, give it to the poor, and you're going to have a better kind of treasure. He wasn't trying to deprive, deprive the rich young ruler. He's trying to enrich him with a better blessing and better treasure. Or if you were to go to Luke chapter 12, verse 33. This is what Jesus told his disciples. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make for yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven. And then he says something that we've already read from Matthew 6. Where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. So, sell your possessions. Give to charity. What's the result? You're going to have an unfailing treasure. Now, our treasures here can fail. 
I had had some money in the stock market when 2008 came and we had the big recession. It dropped like three quarters. There's like 25% left of what I originally invested. It failed, didn't it? Jesus said, this will never fail. This kind of treasure that I'm going to give to you if you sell your possessions and give to charity will never fail. And then look over at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Starting in verse 17, Paul is exhorting Timothy on how he is to instruct the rich people in the church. We'll start in verse 17 here. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. There we go, the uncertainty, the failing nature of riches here. Don't fix your hope on that. But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Here it is, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He's saying, if you will be rich towards others and generous towards others, the result is going to be that you're storing up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. And I believe he's talking about your eternal future. There are going to be eternal riches that you are going to enjoy that if you don't invest your earthly money in now, you'll, you won't enjoy. So the Bible over and over gives us, it holds out this hope of eternal riches for those who are generous and share now. Why should we give? Because it's an act of worship. Secondly, because it yields heavenly treasure. Let's say that you're alive during the Civil War and you're from the North, but you happen to be living in the South. And what's more, you know that the North is going to win the war and that after the war, you're going to go back and you're going to live in the North again but you have a lot of confederate money. Now what would be the smart thing to do with that confederate currency? Convert it to U.S. currency. Because in a, in a matter of months, or maybe a few short years, it's going to be worthless. So you need to take that currency now and convert it into money that's going to be useful later. Our currency here is going to be worthless when we die. But if you'll take it now and convert it into the heavenly currency, eternal treasure, you will be able to enjoy that for all eternity. You see what he's saying? We can't take our money with us, but we can send it on ahead, <laughs> is really the basic idea. Let's say that you have a job where you have to go to England, and you're going to be spending three months in England, and so your company puts you up in a hotel for three months. Now, you can make money, but the rule is you can't take anything back that you buy while you're there. You can't take it back on the flight home. So you can make money and you can make deposits into your bank back here in the, the U.S., uh, but you can't take any objects or possessions with you that you might buy. So what would you think if I went over to England, I'm living in a hotel, and I take my whole paycheck, and I buy these very expensive decorations and wall furnishings, and I put them up in my hotel room, and I buy all this expensive furniture for the hotel, and I think, oh, this will be great. Is that smart? That's stupid, isn't it? Because I'm going to be gone in three months. The furniture's staying there. It's ridiculous for me to heap up to myself things that I'm going to enjoy for just a few months when I could be enjoying that for the rest of my life back here in the United States.
And the same thing is true for us. We, heaven is our real home. We're headed to heaven. It's like this place here, this is like living for three months in a hotel room. And it's foolish for us to invest all of our lives in this world, trying to get as much as we can out of this world, when we're headed to a greater place. And we can enjoy that even more to the full if we'll take this lifetime seriously to live it full on for God, including the use of our money and possessions. So we should give because it's an act of worship, because it yields heavenly treasure. Thirdly, because it funds missionaries. Because it funds missionaries. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul goes on an extended discourse here of talking about his right to receive income from the churches that he serves. But then he says, but I'm not going to use that right. Now let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 3. He says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now God's not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food at the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also, the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now I've heard pastors read these verses and explain them to mean that that's why I should receive a wage or a salary from the church. But I believe they're misapplying this text. I'll tell you why. Go back to the beginning. Paul has a particular group of people in mind here. And as we read through, you tell me who it is. He says, verse 4, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Or do we not have a right to take along? That's a clue. Take along a believing wife? Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas... Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who does Paul have his sights on when he's writing these words? Do you see it? The apostles. These are the itinerant men who are traveling about preaching the gospel and planting churches. They're not local elders who stay in one place who can have a job. These are the apostles. And Barnabas was an apostle with a small a, 
Uh, Paul was one with the big A, and so was Cephas, some of the brothers of the Lord. So he's talking here about apostles. Now, in our day and age, we would call them missionaries. We don't have anybody that writes scripture anymore, but we do have people who are sent by Christ into this foreign field to preach the gospel and to plant churches. Missionaries. And that's what we ought to be applying this section of scripture to. And he does tell us in verse 14, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. You say, well, Brian, what about pastors? Does that mean that none of them should get any money? Well, let's take a look. There is one passage, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that is the closest thing to teaching on this subject that we have in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders, and folks, you know that an elder is just another name for pastor. It's just another name for an overseer. They're all the same person, same animal. <laughs> the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, he says, there are certain elders who should be considered worthy of double honor. So who are they, according to this text? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Especially, so you've got elders, then you've got within the elders, elders who rule well. In other words, they're serious. And they're committed and they're tireless in their work to rule and serve in the body. And within that group, you've got another smaller group who labor in the word and doctrine, preaching and teaching. Paul says, let them be considered worthy of double honor. And we say, okay, what does that mean to be considered worthy of double honor? I think it means two things. Single honor is respect. We ought to respect them and esteem them, highly in love's sake. 1 Thessalonians 5. So respect them. Secondly, I think it means to be willing to contribute financially to their support so that they can work less time secularly and give more time to studying and teaching and preaching the Word of God. Now why do I think honor has, refers to financial support? That's the big question, right? I do because verse 3 says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. And what he means by honoring widows is not respecting widows, but providing for those widows. Because he says some of them are destitute. They need help. And so, if they have no family, the church needs to begin to take care of some of these widows that are in their midst. So it's a financial contribution to help these widows. That's honor. Now, notice verse 18. He says, the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, he says the scripture says the laborer is worthy of his wagers. What scripture is he quoting? Anybody see that in, in the margin of your Bible? He's quoting the words of Jesus in Luke 10, 7. Jesus is sending the 70 out, two by two, to heal and to preach the kingdom. And Jesus told them, don't keep moving about from house to house, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. So what kind of wages did Jesus have in mind? Are the people that he's living with going to be giving him a, a, an annual salary? With benefits? No, he's talking about room and board. Let them stay at your house and feed them. That's going to be your wages as you go to preach the gospel and heal the sick.
So that's probably what Paul had in mind here when he talked about giving them double honor. Make sure you take care of their basic needs, their housing needs, their food. They don't have to worry about those things. They can devote themselves to ministry. And that's why we give, when we give to Gospel for Asia, they're taking care of the basic needs of these native missionaries over in India so that they don't have to be preoccupied with that, but they can spend all of their time preaching the Gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. So, why should we give? Because our giving funds missionaries. There was a study done by the Evangelical Christian Credit Union. They wanted to find out what percentage of the average church's budget goes to buildings, salaries, and administration. Anybody have a guess what that average percentage would be? For buildings, salaries, and administration. Okay, anybody else want to try? No, no, it's actually 82%. But what I wanted to share with you is we are so blessed here because we don't have to spend any money for buildings, salaries, and administration, which means we have 82% of a budget that normally would be going somewhere that is freed up, and what we want to do here at the bridge is to start giving 50% of whatever comes in to foreign missions. Just whatever, whatever comes in, take half of it, and it goes out to Heart Cry Missionary Society or to Gospel for Asia, where these native missionaries are being funded to get the gospel to unreached peoples throughout the world. Isn't that a blessing? Most churches can't do that, but God has made it possible that we can do that because we meet in a home, and because I have no salary, I don't need any money. We can take all that money and just, well, 50% goes to missions, and then we're going to do something else with... Uh, the poor, we're going to give to the poor, and we're going to fund our radio ministry, and then take about 15% of, of that total that comes in and just take care of what, whatever needs we have here locally. Just church needs. So, praise God. Giving funds missionaries. Fourthly, our giving helps the poor. That's the fourth reason why we should give, because it helps the suffering poor. Now, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase a bunch of scripture for you here because the Bible has a lot to say about how we should be helping the poor. In Acts chapter 4, the early church, they decided that nothing that they owned belonged to themselves and that they were going to take their possessions and start selling it and they brought the money to the apostles and then the apostles distributed it to anybody as they had need. And nobody was in need. Nobody was in need. Everybody had their needs taken care of because the church was caring for each other. They were helping to take care of the poor within their community. In Acts chapter 11, a prophet named Agabus stands up. This is verses 27 to 30. Agabus stands up and gives a prophecy, and he says a great famine is coming. It's going to affect the region of Jerusalem. And so what happens? The believers in Antioch take up a contribution to send through Barnabas and Saul to Jerusalem to give to the saints there in Jerusalem so that when this famine hits, they're going to have their food taken care of, their basic needs. Later in Romans 15, it's verses 25 to 27, we find Paul writing about a special collection that he's going to receive for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Let's just read that one. That's great. Great sections. Romans 15, 25. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. 
For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. So here he's saying, we have poor saints in Jerusalem. You Gentile churches, let's take up an offering to help that church over there in Jerusalem that's suffering. And they did. The Gentile churches were ecstatic. They were eager about helping with this collection to bless their other brothers and sisters. Even though they were Gentiles and they were Jews, they didn't care. It was a way of bridging the, the ethnicity barrier between Jews and Gentiles and showing solidarity and union in the church. We also have Ephesians 4.28 where Paul is talking to those who used to be thieves. He says in Ephesians 4.28, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. Why? So that he will have something to share with the person who has need. Is that why you go to work Monday through Friday? That's why Paul says we ought to work. So that we have a surplus, more than what we need, so we can give away money to people who have needs. I want to try to motivate you t towards a higher goal than just taking care of your PG&E bill and paying your rent. Let's make more money than we need by being hard workers, diligent workers, so we've got something to invest in the poor, we've got something to invest in missions, we've got something to invest in local evangelism. Wouldn't it be great if Christians were prosperous so that they use their prosperity to bless the kingdom, to see Jesus' fame advance throughout the world. And then we have James 1.27 For this is pure and undefiled religion, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now what do you think he meant when he said to visit orphans and widows in their distress? That just to knock on their door and say, hi, we want to spend 30 minutes visiting you, see you later. <laughs> I think it had, it included the idea of doing something to relieve their distress. Widows had no man to support them. They're, unless they're able to somehow make a meager living, which is not very likely, and, and here are orphans, they don't have parents to take care of them. So visit them in their distress, do something to relieve their suffering. And then we have the words of John in 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In other words, how can you claim that God's love is abiding in you if you have the goods of the world, you see this guy suffering over here, it's your brother, but you stingily and greedily hold it to yourself and won't open up your heart and help this fellow. He says, don't just talk about your giving and your love. Don't just make your, your, your giving something you talk about. Verse 18, let us not love with word or with tongue. Do it in deed and truth. Open up your checkbook and give. So over and over again, the New Testament encourages giving to the poor. It encourages giving to missions. And if you have elders or pastors who work hard at preaching and teaching and they need the support of a church, give to that as well. These are New Testament principles about giving. So we want to give 50% to missions. We also want to earmark 10% for benevolence, for charity. 
And after going to the Sacramento Union Gospel Mission last week, I'm thinking that would be a good place for us to give some money. They're doing a good work. They're not only taking people off the street and giving them showers and a place to, to stay the night and giving them free food. They're also giving them the gospel day after day after day after day. So we want to be open-handed as a church looking for worthy charities that will relieve suffering people. So those are the four reasons we see from Scripture. It's an act of worship, it yields heavenly treasure, it funds missionaries, and it helps the poor. Now let's look at the second question, how should we give? So some people answer this question, they say we should give by tithing. How many of you were raised in a church which taught that that was what we should do with our money? We should tithe. Okay. I want to just look at that idea for a moment. Should, are we supposed to give by tithing? That is, are we supposed to give 10% of our income to the Lord as a way of honoring the Lord with our wealth? Well, we do find tithing taught in the Old Testament two times before the law was given and then it comes up many times where it's connected to the law of Moses. But the interesting thing is once we come to the New Testament no one mentions it again. Jesus talked about it in passing, but that's before he died and rose again and sealed the new covenant in his blood. After that, there's no mention of tithing again. It's silent about it. So if we were to go back to the Old Testament, we find two instances of tithing before the law. Do you remember who they were? That's right, Abraham was the first one. Who was the second? Jacob. Abraham and Jacob. Abraham tithed what? 10% of what? The booty of a, of, a, of a war, a battle that he had won. He took the, the plunder from an enemy army. He took 10% of that and gave it to Melchizedek. So if you want to tithe, according to Abraham's example, you've got to go out to war, you've got to win the war, take some booty, and give 10% of that away. That's not really a good example for us under the New Covenant. Also, God never required Abraham to give 10%. It was Abraham's idea entirely. The second one was Jacob. Jacob made a promise to God that if God would protect him and bring him back safely to this land that he was about to leave, that he would give 10% of whatever God had blessed him with. So he got, <laughs> Jacob was using this as sort of a bargaining chip. Lord, you take care of me and I'll give you 10% of whatever you give me. Not a real good example either. That was also Jacob's uh, it was his idea. It wasn't God's idea. We find it being God's idea under the law of Moses. Now, under the law of Moses, there were three different types of tithes. Number one, the Levite's tithe. You can read about it in Numbers 18, 21 to 24. This was a tithe, a 10% of the herd and the crops of the people of Israel. So it wasn't bringing their money. It was bringing one-tenth of their crops and one-tenth of all their herds. One lamb for every ten lambs you had. You'd bring it, that you'd give it to the priesthood and the, and the, and that were there at the temple, and it was to support those Levitical priests so that they didn't have to be out there working secular jobs. So the Levites tithe to support the priesthood. A second tithe, that was the festival tithe. And the festival tithe, you can learn about that in Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 27. The festival tithe was a tithe that they were to take a, a second 10%. So you've got 10% now for the Levi's tribe, uh, tithe. 
then another 10% for this festival tithe, and they were to use that for these three major festivals that all the males would come up to Jerusalem to observe. And that's so, it was to fund them, so they had plenty of food and drink, and they, it was like a big party, a spiritual, religious, Jewish party that sometimes would go on for days and days. And they needed some money to have these parties, to build community within the Jewish nation. And so they would take 10%, set it aside, and they would use it just to enjoy God, enjoy each other at these festivals. But then there was a third tithe, and that was the poor tithe. And this was a tithe that was taken up every three years. So rather than being 10% per year, it was 3.3% per year. So you add these required tithes up, and you have 23.3% that was required by God in various tithes to give to support various things. You see, Israel was a theocracy. They were ruled directly by God. And so those Levites, they were sort of like our government workers today. And those religious festivals, they're sort of like our national holidays. And the poor tithe, that's sort of like our welfare system. You see, their tithe was kind of like our taxes. It's required. You have no choice about it. You have to give it. It's part of the law. If you want to really give something from the heart, you can't even do that till you've paid your 23.3% first, and then offerings are added on to that. So, when you get down to it, God's standard of giving has never been 10%. Never! 23.3% was just starting, and then you could actually start giving from your heart after that. There is no mention of tithing for Christians under the New Covenant. Now why would the New Testament authors not give us a percentage about how much we ought to be giving? Can you think of any good reasons? We'd stop. If you're wealthy, you'd stop at 10%. Whereas that's probably not the will of God for someone who has a lot of money. He ought to be giving 20 or 30 or 40 or 50% or, or more of his income to God. So here's the biblical principle. God owns everything. He owns it all. You don't own one last thing as a Christian because you're a slave of Christ. And when someone had a slave, everything that he owned was the master's. It wasn't his. The slave was his property, his possession. We are simply the money managers of God. And we need to stop saying things like, my car, my house. We need to consciously think, the Lord's car, the Lord's house, the Lord's clothes, the Lord's Bible, the Lord's everything. And that we need to start managing what we are stewards over the way He wants us to. Okay, so here's, here's the question. We shouldn't be asking, how much of my money should I give to God? It's totally wrong. We ought to be saying, how much of God's money is it okay for me to keep? Total reversal of our thinking. But that's the biblical way for us to think as Christians. God owns it all. Someone has said in uh, Moody Monthly Magazine, did a research study on how much the average church member actually gives of his income to the Lord, and they found it was 2.5%. So it wasn't 23.3%, it wasn't even 10%, it was 2.5%. Folks, that's pitiful. It's pitiful. <laughs> Someone, another writer said that if every person in the Southern Baptist Convention were to give even 10%, they could fulfill the Great Commission in five years. They'd have enough money to fund all the missionaries that were necessary to get to every people group in the world within five years' time. 
but we don't even give 10%. I mean, folks, we, we need to come to grips with our generosity or lack thereof, our faithfulness as stewards of what God has blessed us with. So no, the tithing, the tithe is not biblical. There may be some very poor people who can't afford 10%. That's okay. There may be some wealthy people who can afford 25, 30, or 50%. That's what they ought to be doing. We ought to be giving as God has blessed us. Now, I'm going to lay down five quick, simple principles of how we should give. First of all, consistently. We ought to be giving consistently. And this has been a lack in our church. Over the year previously, there was nobody except for one family that gave every month. And that's sad. We ought to be consistent. Why? Because every time you get paid, there's an opportunity for you to worship God. And if you don't give some of what God has given to you through that check or through that source, you've missed your opportunity to worship. When the early church was taking up a collection for the poor, notice this, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. On the first day of every week. In other words, consistently, regularly, take some of that money that you have been paid during that week, set it aside and let it build up, and then give it to Paul, who will then take it to Jerusalem and bless these poor saints. But you see the consistency there. Don't give one week and wait three months and give it again. Every week you're setting aside something to give to God. I, it cracks me up sometimes when I hear somebody say, you know, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give half of that to the church. How many times have you heard somebody say something like that? It cracks me up because, well, what are you doing right now with whatever you got? Well, nothing. I can't afford to give. But if I win the lottery, I'm going to give 50% of it. to. It's, it's a joke, really. Because every, every, I don't care how poor you are, how poor you think you are, you've got something that you can give back to the Lord. And you can't afford not to because you're squandering heavenly treasure every time you clutch onto that wealth rather than willing to release it. Okay, so first principle, give consistently. Second principle, give eagerly. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So what's the opposite of doing something grudgingly? Cheerfully or eagerly. A, a grudging obedience is, well, I have to do it. I don't want to, but I'll, I guess I'll, I'll do it because I have to. The opposite of that is to do it voluntarily and eagerly. I want to. Can I? Can I do this? Look back at chapter 8. Verse 3 and 4. Now Paul is talking about the churches of Macedonia which were very poor. And he says, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints. So here you've got these dirt poor people begging to be able to be involved in this gift and they looked at it as a favor. Lord, it's a favor. Can we get involved in this too? 
And Paul says, well, sure you can. They gave past their ability. They gave to where it hurt. It was sacrificial for them. So I want to encourage you to give cheerfully, eagerly, happily, voluntarily. Not because anyone's dragging something out of you, but because you, your heavenly bank account increases every time you give. Third principle, sacrificially. Let's read the first three verses of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal, a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So you see a principle here. These Macedonian churches were giving sacrificially. You remember the widow? This is, she is a great example of sacrificial giving, isn't she? She only gave two coins, but Jesus said she gave more than anybody else because she gave everything she had to live on. It touched her life. It pinched her. She felt it when she gave. Fourth principle. We should give expectantly. Let's go back to chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Remember the context of sowing and reaping in this chapter is what? It's giving. So he's saying if you sow by giving sparingly, you're going to get back, you're going to reap sparingly. And if you sow much financially as you give, you're going to reap bountifully. Now we've already talked about the, our eternal treasure is enhanced as we give. Did you know that in this life, blessings come back to those who give? I know we get real squeamish when we start talking about this, but I'm just reading to you verse 6. How can we understand verse 6 any other way than that God blesses those who give? I know that it is a wrong teaching to say, give in order to get. Now why is that wrong? It's right. It's producing a covetous, greedy spirit, and that's of the flesh. We ought to be trying to promote the spiritual aspect of the believer. So it's an unselfish spirit. But I will say this. We give in order to get, in order to give. Now it's not selfish. Now it is unselfish because we want to fund the kingdom advancing throughout the world. Look at verse 8. He says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. So if we really get serious about being generous givers, God is going to bless us back, and we're going to have an abundance for every good deed that we want to do. I'm just trying to take this at face value. So you should give expectantly. Expect God to bless you, so that you can further His kingdom, not so that you can build your own little empire on the earth. And if you do that, God's going to chastise you. Because you're being an unfaithful steward if you do that. John Bunyan, you guys know who he is, right? He wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote this little ditty. There was a saint. Some thought him mad. The more he gave, the more he had. There was a saint. Some thought him mad. <laughs> the more he gave, the more he had. There, there is a, a principle, and I think it's a true one, that you can't 
outgive God. You can try, see what happens. See if you can outgive God. It takes trust to release funds, doesn't it? It takes real faith to do that. And then the final principle is proportionately. We ought to give proportionately. We already saw this in 1 Corinthians 16 too. Let's read it again. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save how? As he may prosper. He doesn't say set aside and save 10%. He says set aside and save as he may prosper. Or Acts 11, verse 29. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each one of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. What does it say? In the proportion that any of the disciples had means, they determined to send part of that for these suffering saints in Jerusalem. So the principle is to give proportionately. If you make $20,000 a year, you're going to be giving less than someone who makes $100,000 a year. The guy who makes $100,000 a year ought to be giving a lot more. As God has prospered him. As he has means. Randy Alcorn made this statement, and I think it's really good. He says, God blesses us not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. But I will be the first to confess to you that when I got a raise, I would be working somewhere and I'd get a 5% raise. I just sort of happened to absorb that somehow. I wasn't giving 5% more to the Lord's work. It's so easy just to allow yourself to slip into just absorbing that and living off that rather than trying to cap. This is a reasonable amount for me to live on. Now let's take whatever is above that and let's put it into the Lord's work. Inherit heavenly treasure. Do good now. Relieve suffering. Get the missions to the foreign, furthest points of the world. Wouldn't that be more like what the Lord would want us to do as faithful stewards than just keep amassing our little fortunes and empires? So, if you make $100,000, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should have a $100,000 standard of living. Maybe you can do just fine with $40,000 a year or whatever it happens to be. Then you've got $60,000 to invest in the kingdom. You guys think I'm kidding, don't you? No. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm just trying to teach faithfully the Word of God. Okay, conclusion. What's our motivation for giving? It's right here in 2 Corinthians 8 9. What should motivate us to do all of this? It's the example of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, when it says that Jesus was rich, what's it talking about? Bingo. He was worshipped by every being there, except, of course, God the Father and God the Spirit. But all the angels, all the spirits of just men made perfect. He was worshipped and adored. He had all the riches of heaven. He gave it all up. And he became poor. And he became a homeless, itinerant, 
preacher and healer and rabbi going from place to place doing good and healing those oppressed by the devil. He gave all the riches up so that we could become poor. And now he says, I want you to be like me. You're rich? Okay. Become poor so that others can become rich. Give it up so that people are saved. So that people over in Taiwan or Bhutan or Bangladesh, when you get to heaven, they're going to come up to you and say, thank you so much for those, those monies you gave because they funded missionaries that came to my village and I became a Christian. I'm here today because of something you did. Wouldn't that be cool? So here is how I think we'd like to break it down at the bridge. 50% missions. 10% benevolence. It's going to take about 25% to fund the radio ministry. But it seems like God is using that and it would be a shame to give it up. So I think that would be a good use of funds. That leaves 15% left for anything else we need as a church, like website development or equipment or foodstuffs or whatever comes up. We can live off 15%. That's pretty cool. We don't need 100% to get by. 15% will do just fine. So I want to encourage you to take these principles that we've learned today and obey them. Apply them. Talk to your husband and your wife. Make it a matter of prayer. Take it to the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to do as your money manager? I recognize none of the stuff I've got is mine. It's yours. What do you want me to do with this wealth you've entrusted to me? And let's see kingdom advancement take place. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, would you take what we've learned today and really, really work it into our hearts and make us faithful. And please, Lord, help us not to be greedy or distrustful of your provision, but to be generous givers so that your kingdom and your fame and your honor can be advanced and the poor can be relieved. Lord, do this work for Jesus' sake. Amen.